Football Bosses with Marco Zapponi and Tony Pinata on FNR Football Nation Radio. Welcome to the Football Bosses. This is edition number five. Michael Zapponi and Tony Pinata with you. Hello, Tony. Michael, good to be back after we uh, missed last week. Yes, with uh, the Socceroos making it to the World Cup, a lot can happen in in a week in this game. And of course, Ange Postacoglu announcing that he would move on. Uh, huge conversation around uh, the game and the repercussions for that. Speaking of the bosses, who do you think the next boss of the Socceroos will be or should be? Well, I think they'll. Um, I think they'll go local. So there's a couple of uh, candidates. Um, you know, they've all. You're already sort of thrown out there, you know, from Gombau to Musket to Arnie. So, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. It's going to occupy the uh, the uh, journalists for the next uh, few weeks, won't it? Yeah, and before moving on, we should reflect on Ange and, and his time as the Socceroos boss. What was most interesting for me in the press conference was when, when he spoke about the the legacy that uh, he's... The, the players um, and, and the time that the, the players uh, are in their progression and when he first came into the the squad uh, and he looked at this squad he gave a lot of players the opportunity to play at the last World Cup four years ago and uh, the fact that he made a point uh, with David Gallup of sitting down and s- stating that we really needed to regenerate this squad and give a lot of younger players the opportunity to play at the World Cup and if we hadn't have done that we wouldn't be where we are today, and that is qualified for another World Cup. And he made the reference point of some of the other big nations in the world who weren't able to qualify for the World Cup, like Italy, like Chile, like the Holland. Netherlands, yep. who didn't regenerate their squads. And the consequences are that they haven't made the World Cup this time round. No, look, he uh, job done. I mean, he um, coached at the last World Cup. Um, after he took over from Holgram, some credible performances there. Won the Asian Cup in uh, in Sydney that that special night, and was amazing um, to be there at the stadium to watch uh, us lift a major trophy like that. And qualified for you know the fourth consecutive World Cup that Australia is going to be there, and the first you know Australian soccer coach to take us um, to to World Cup. So. He knows the reasons why he's decided to uh, to leave now, and um, you know we've got to respect it. But I think uh, you know he leaves uh, with his head uh, held high, and um, you know, and a big tick for uh, his um, four years in, in in his tenure. I think you would find uh, hard to f- press to find a, a, a more passionate bloke about our game, and uh, he's lived it and breathed it all of his life. And I've read his book recently, and and he spoke about playing when he was uh, you know in. in, in High school here, playing in Paran, wearing footy jumpers. He's he's just been an advocate for our game ever since he's uh, stepped foot into this country, and um, a, a loss, a loss to our sport. Um, but let's hope we find uh, someone who can bring us to the to uh, the next level now. Definitely, um, you know, for uh, you know, I can I can relate to him a lot. You know, with his family living in Melbourne, him travelling as well, and similar circumstances. So, you know, I think deep down he, he made that decision, and um, he's probably now you know big uh, big relief with that uh, decision out out in the public. And uh, we'll wait and see what what happens with um, Ange Postecoglou after. Um, uh, next week on yeah before we move on uh, it'll be interesting to see his next move it looks like he will move into club football he, he said to, that he does miss that week to week combat that day to day strategizing, the day to day contact with his players and you know when the first speculation uh, uh, 
was out there. It was really uh, a, a, a combination of well, does it, does he has he given up on the Socceroos and and is he looking at uh, Asia as as uh, an option? I'd love to see someone like Ange break the frontier of coaching in a big league in Europe. In in the past, we've had players who've been stars in the English Premier League. They've been stars in the Serie A. They've been uh, playing in 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 the top leagues in the world. We haven't had coaches do that yet, and we know that Tony Popovich has moved over there. He's playing. He's coaching uh, in Turkey, and it's not a huge club in Turkey. But it wouldn't it be great to see someone like Ange be the first to, to break that uh, barrier and coach in the English Premier League or, or coach at a big club in in one of the big leagues? Oh, definitely. I think it would be fantastic. And um, you know, if anyone can do it, Ange can do it. So we'll, we'll wait and see what happens. A big show coming up, Tony. We've got uh, Romo Negarotto uh, on the program, a former chairman of Soccer Australia, a man who's been involved with this uh, sport for a long, long time. We'll talk to him about the reform that's uh, about to take place in uh, Australian football or some changes uh, that uh, potentially are coming up. And the other thing we'll talk to Remo about, because he's based in Italy these days, is uh, about the Italian national team and uh, the fallout after the Italians failed to make the World Cup. Did you ever think you'd uh, be uttering those words? (laughs) No. I mean, uh, last time they uh, qualified, I wasn't even born. And... um yeah, very, very surprised and um, gutted, to be honest. But um, Australia made it. That was uh, the main priority. But, um, you know, it's always good to, uh, as an Italian, to follow the Azzurri as well. And uh, the head of the national teams for Football Federation Australia, Luke Cassily, will be joining us uh, very soon. It would be great to get his insights into uh, the national team set up. And uh, he's not just responsible for the Socceroos, but all of the national teams that uh, fall under that. And uh, it's a big job. Yeah, massive job. Um, dealt with Luke uh, quite a bit, and um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see, uh, you know, with, with the Socceroos and preparation for for Russia and and what that entails, logistics, um, games, um, you know, scouting over there to find venues and and training camps and everything like that. So uh, yeah, we'll uh, get a good insight from uh, from Luke. So plenty more coming up here on Football Bosses. You're listening to FNR Luke Cassidy to join us after the break. Welcome back to Football Bosses. Michael Zapponi and Tony Pena. Speaking of bosses, Tony, we uh, tend to attract some pretty big bosses in our game, mostly thanks to you and all of your contacts. But uh, another boss we've got uh, on the program is Luke Cassily. He is the head of national performance, so the boss of national performance. Thanks for joining us, Luke. Uh, pleasure. How are you going, guys? It's been a big week uh, for our sport, of course, with uh, the Socceroos getting through to their fourth successive World Cup and Ange Postacoglu, of course, announcing that uh, he will move on as the head coach. What's it uh, like amongst uh, the officers of the FFA at the moment? Yeah, pretty quiet day. Um, I'm actually uh, involved with the Matildas, and Matildas have a game against China tonight. But, uh, yeah, it's been, um, been a big day for the game. I'd, I'd be... Uh, I'd be lying if I said it was a it was a complete surprise and shock to us. Um, but uh, yeah, on reflection, it's a, in in many respects, it's a bit of a sad day. I I certainly feel very fortunate to have worked with Ange over the last uh, four years. He's uh, he's a super guy, a fantastic Australian coach, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a shame we don't have him going through. But uh, it's uh, as you know, when you've been around the game long enough, it is football, and uh, these, these things uh, are always a bit of a moving beast, and. Uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, getting stuck into the process and uh, uh, for recru- recruiting a new head coach. Luke, Tony, um, thanks for coming on. And, uh, yeah, first of all, congratulations, um, you know, qualifying for, uh, for another World Cup. Uh, 
process. Take, talk us through what that entails and how the process will now to uh, to find the next uh, Socceroo coach. Yeah, well, obviously we'll um, we'll, we'll sit down with uh, with the CEO, chairman, head of our football development committee, and uh, and key board members and stakeholders. I think the most important thing that we need to do is outline our criteria, the vision for the organisation, and our criteria, and then that really. Once you, once we nail that, it really tends to narrow uh, the field down pretty quickly on, on where we want to go. So obviously there'll be some key elements that will be decided by people uh, above my level. Um, you know, around, you know, in simple terms, do we uh, do we want to stick on the path that we're on with uh, local coaches, or are we happy to to look beyond that and look abroad? And you know, obviously if um, you know, if the decision is to stick with local coaches, then um, it, it narrows the pool pretty quickly, and uh, I think things could move then. But uh, uh, you know, if we if we open that process up, and uh, you know, we look at every opportunity or every possibility that there is, then um, it's difficult to do something like that really quickly. Um, but as I said, most important for us is to really nail down that criteria. When we brought Engine, um, we had a really clear. Uh, focus and criteria what the vision for the organisation was over the next four years um, and you know I think upon reflection we got that absolutely spot on and a guy that uh, met and delivered uh, on all of those fronts and we just really need to to kind of nut that out moving forward and, and be sure that we're, we, we've got a really clear path on where we want to go. Luke, uh, I, you know, I've had experience to work in the corporate environment, and you know, it's it's not uncommon for uh, organisations to change their their strategy or tweak their strategy over time as as the market moves and market changes. You you move with it, and you move with the objectives uh, of of the organisation. So, I suppose my question is: uh, Is your strategy and your objectives are they the same today as they were four years ago when when Ange was appointed? Yeah, look, I, I can only talk from, from my own perspective and, and I don't think they shifted that much, you know. Um, with us, it was really important for us that we had a coach that was philosophically aligned um, with our national curriculum. I, I guess it doesn't make too much sense, in my view, to have a curriculum that develops players to play a certain way and then but the national teams don't follow that. Um, so I, for us, it's really important that it's actually our national teams are are really a shining example of, of what we represent and how we want the game to be played. Um, but it goes beyond that. So there's obviously the football, technical, tactical side, but I think where our coach sits within the um, within the sporting landscape in Australia, that it's really important that our head coach is an ambassador for the whole game, um, is someone that can engage with our fans, engage with the media, engage with our corporate partners. Um, so, you know, in my opinion, the role actually goes uh, above and beyond just uh, what happens on the pitch. Of course, what happens on the pitch is the most important part. At senior national team level, qualifying for World Cups, being successful, winning games is, is obviously important. Um, but I think we have to look uh, a little bit broader than that um, yeah, for the, for the soccer root job, in my opinion. And there's been a lot of discussion, obviously, about our development development pathways and, and uh, how that's progressing and, and the number of players who are playing in the English Premier League or in the top leagues uh, in Europe. Talk to us about you know the how you work with, with uh, the teams and the coaches and, and uh, how that process works in, in terms of developing our younger talent and, and, and how do you think we're placed at the moment? Yeah, look, I think they're two separate things. If you're talking in my role just for the national teams, uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit difficult. Um, you know, we try and 
vertically integrate everything we do from our senior teams, men and women, through all of our teams. So, and that's from the football side, sports science side, prehab, medical, the way we analyse teams, analyse oppositions, our positional profiling of players. We coordinate that all the way through our national teams with um, one vertically integrated uh, model. Um, so from that perspective, when it comes to developing players, it's really clear on our national playing style, from the Joeys and Junior Matildas, the way we want our teams to play, so that when players come into the older age groups, um, it's not foreign to them and they and they kind of slip straight into it. We've worked really hard on that over the last four years to develop that. But when you talk about development pathways, that's, that's very different. And, um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, we do certainly have some issues and, you know, we've seen some other countries implode a bit with non-qualification to the World Cup with the USA and Italy and for us we can't allow that you know we qualify for the World Cup now so that papers over and covers all the cracks that we have so I think we've got some um, uh, a fair bit of work to do in that in that pathway space um, you know I, I spent a long part of my life in in the NSL and the progression to the A-League um, I think has been fantastic and to the professional level of the game um, but what has happened is um, our junior development pathways have, have changed a lot. So, you know, we used to have, you know, some close to 3,000 players under the guide of the clubs in the top league. Uh, when I was growing up, we had a northern and southern division NYL with 28 national youth league teams. So there was lots and lots of opportunities. When the A-League started, we started with just eight teams, seven teams in Australia, no juniors. So our um, professional club are only just getting juniors now um, and, I, and I certainly think a lot needs to be done in creating opportunities for our young players to play um, so yeah I, I kind of see our development side in my role with the national teams and in our overall pathways um, uh, are a little bit a little bit separate, a little bit different but uh, certainly an area that we need to do a lot of work in Look, um, and one team that's flying at the moment is the Matildas. They um, had a great uh, series win over Brazil. They take on China um, tonight, and then they've um, China in uh, in Geelong on the weekend. Um, so, what's what's next for the Matildas after uh, this qualification of this this series? Um, what's uh, big tournaments are coming up for them? Um, yeah, it goes into a little bit of a recess, uh, obviously. Um, the, the, the games that we have uh, against China this week um, disrupt the W League a little bit. Um, so we sort of, the, the program goes into recess to allow the, the, the W League to take centre stage. And then the big tournaments come up. We normally play in a, uh, a friendly tournament in March in either the Cyprus or Algarve Cup. Uh, and the Matildas will have their Asian Cup in April in Jordan next year, which uh, is both the Asian Cup and doubles as their World Cup qualifiers. So... Uh, to qualify for France in 2019, so that's the uh, the big one that comes up for the Matildas next year. And then hopefully, um, you know, 2023 we can get the Women's World Cup in Australia. It'll be sensational if uh, we can pull that off. Yeah, it'll be fantastic. I think um, you know I, I obviously speak of this a little bit selfishly, but uh, you know we've seen the impact that a successful national team can have on the whole game and what the Matildas have done for the women's game of late and. Um, you know, the, the uh, inspiration they provide to all of the, uh, the young girls out there playing is sensational. Look, just on the performance of uh, you know our junior national teams, I suppose uh, over the last few years hasn't been as, as successful as maybe we 
came to expect um, from some some very successful teams. Uh, obviously, in the, in that golden era when you know the boys like Ned Zelic and, and Mark Bosnich who were running around, they made the, the World Youth Championships in uh, in Portugal. I think the semi final there. Um, there have been some great performances at Olympic Games, but a bit lean over the last few years. What 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 what's the FFA doing to sort of address that? Is that is that a priority to ensure that our you know under our Joey's and our uh, Ollie Roos teams become uh, a lot more competitive and, and make those big tournaments. I think the young Matildas just missed out recently as well. Yeah, look, it's an interesting one. I, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not one to make excuses, but the landscape has shifted significantly. I look back to my own time when I um, was involved in the young Socceroos and junior national teams. You know, we would uh, obviously qualify directly through Oceania, uh, so the qualification process to be at the major tournaments. Um, was, was not so difficult and doesn't present the challenges that Asia does, which is good for us. It, um, you know, I think it's better for our development to be challenged the way we are in Asia uh, versus how we were in, in Oceania. And then we would go to tournaments. So with a 16-team National League and 15 teams based in Australia, we would go to tournaments with a whole group of players that are, go to a youth tournament with a team that are, that are playing regular first-team football. We look at our young Socceroos now... Um, we struggle to have one player that plays regular first-team football in the Young Socceroos. And then we have to go to tournaments against nations that pour significant, significant dollars into the junior national team programs. Um, so for us, I think we really need to try and compensate for the senior football that our players don't get with youth international programs, um, which, which obviously has its challenges. Every time we, we touch a plane, it's... It's not cheap with the distances that we have to travel. But I, I certainly think we need to ramp up our junior national team programs um, and the work that's been done uh, by Eric Abrams and his team around uh, the A-League Club Academies, uh, high-performance schools, talent support programs. There's a fair bit of work that's going on in the background to create greater opportunities um, for that. But the reality is our young players need more games. And that's what, you know, in my time in Sydney, we set up the academy under, under Kelly Cross there and, uh, you know, from 13s all the way through to, to sort of uh, 18s and 20s. So hopefully, you know, four or five years' time um, with the other A-League clubs doing that as, as, as well, you know, we can develop players. But um, speaking of the, the Socceroos, I think the next, next uh, I suppose, window they're going to play in is, is March. Is that right? And what happens... Uh, you know, when the draw comes out, um, logistics, um, you know, to, to get to Russia, how does that all work now, Luke? Yeah, look, we've already done a fair bit of planning in the background. We've selected our uh, training base in Russia um, already, so we're all sort of set to go there. The draw is obviously an interesting one. Everyone has the March window where they'll play and uh, one or two practice games leading into the World Cup, so the draw has a significant impact on that, so... Um, and, and after the draw, there's a, there's a fair bit of manoeuvring for everyone to try and organise their practice games uh, while you're in the draw. So obviously if we uh, draw a South American or an African opponent, we will look to try and line up uh, friendly matches against similar types of opponents and, uh, and the like. But um, from a logistical perspective, we're, we're, we're a fair way down the track and we're, we're pretty comfortable and well prepared where we are around our um, training base. Obviously we had a fantastic advantage by... Uh, playing in the Confeds Cup in Russia, so we're, um, you know, we're across a lot of the things that we're going to face. And uh, if the Confeds Cup is anything to go by, it'll be uh, an extremely efficient and well-organised tournament. And just before we let you go, Luke, uh, you know, we, we 
love talking about um, the famous trip from uh, Uruguay to Australia in the chartered jet that became part of folklore in 2005 and you replicated that this time round with uh, the trip back from Honduras. How much of an advantage do you think that gave our side? Oh, I think it definitely gave us an advantage on the way back um, but what not too many people have spoken about is that there, there were 17 Honduran players that were based in Honduras and were in the training camp for uh, 10 days before the first game. So, we had enormous challenges getting everyone into Honduras from all different parts of the world. Um, so they, uh, they certainly had an advantage on us in the first week. Um, but we think uh, from a logistics and sports science perspective that uh, we did pretty well on the way back. You know, I was, you know, a lot of being spoken about and we had a lot on file from what was done in 2005. And, uh, you know, I was pretty determined to, uh, with a 100% Australian staff, to do the efforts of, uh, of 2005. And I think we did pretty well. Did you keep a pair of those glasses? <laughs> I'm, look, I'm looking for the swimming glasses. <laughs> we, all, we all need those now that we're all over 40. Well well done, uh, Luke, on, on uh, playing your part in, in uh, getting the Socceroos to the World Cup. And uh, we know there's a lot of work to do from this point on. And we appreciate you joining us on Football Bosses. No, thanks very much. It's, uh, it's been uh, an excellent journey and a great ride. And as I said, I was very privileged uh, to work with Ange uh, through that and Certainly wish him all the best for his future. Thanks, Luke, and um, and and all the best with the uh, Matildas and uh, and the Socceroos and uh, getting the next uh, Socceroo coach. All right, cheers. Thanks very much, Luke Cassidy, joining us on Football Bosses here on FNR. Welcome back to Football Bosses on Football Nation Radio. Michael Zapponi and Tony Pinata with you. Another of uh, football's big bosses uh, joins us now. Well, he was the big boss once upon a time, Tony, not that long ago. His name is Remo Nogarotto. These days uh, he lives in Italy. Lucky him. Remo, I'll have to have a chat to you offline about how you managed to, to do that. That is my dream one day to uh, find a job, uh, find some work over there. So we'll have a cup of coffee next time uh, we're in the same work. town. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, we're very thankful for your time. And, uh, uh, of course, Remo was the former chairman of Soccer Australia. And uh, he joins us on the line now. Thanks for joining us, Remo. Pleasure. Good morning or good afternoon in your Is the cafetiera up? Have you had the coffee yet? Uh, I've had two uh, already, uh, you guys would like, to, would like to know, and they've both been fine expressions of coffee. <laughs> I'm sure they are. Now, um, of course, you, you, you spent uh, a long time here working uh, in the game and, and leading the game in this country, and uh, no doubt you'd have uh, your views on what's happening uh, with our game here and uh, the reform process, which uh, has taken up a lot of uh, our conversations on this program and, and in the media. Where do you see... Uh, our game at the moment and uh, what do you think needs to happen uh, in terms of reform? Well look I'll only put a slight caveat uh, on my comments and that is uh, I'm watching and reading things from afar and only periodically getting back uh, back to Oz but um, my impressions are that um, I don't find the current debate uh, completely remarkable uh, in the context of where the game is at today. Um, I was the guy who handed the keys over to Frank Lowy in 2003 uh, because at that stage the game was terminally ill um, and it needed something different. Um, we've had 14 great years, uh, from what I can observe uh, from this side of the world, 
14 great years where the, where the game has grown, it's matured, it's now uh, at a retail level at least uh, at its strongest uh, ever point. But with that, you've got to recognise that uh, as, as the economic model evolves, the governance model has to evolve in alignment with that. So I find the current tensions um, not entirely remarkable, and I do think that occasionally, to be perfectly honest, back home, uh, when it comes uh, to football, we beat ourselves up a little bit too much. Um, uh, you know, it's not a remarkable debate that we're having, and we need to settle it sooner rather than later. And what do you think, uh, given your experience and uh, what you've seen uh, in your time at uh, Soccer Australia at the time and, and, and what you've seen observing the game closely from Italy, is the preferred model for, for our game at this point in time? There was no, no question that uh, it was a time when you know, Frank Lowy came in, that uh, that, that was uh, an important time, an important development in our game. It needed someone to, 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 to take the game to where it was, but... There is an argument to say now is the time that we need to change again. Do you, do you agree with that? I do. I do. Uh, because, as I said in my opening comments, you need to get the economic evolution in, in alignment with the governance evolution. You can't, you know, the, the more pluralist or democratic the decision-making pro, uh, process is, or structure, more to the point, is at, uh, at the Congress level the better off the game is. You can't have stakeholders that feel that they play an important role in the development of the game but are disenfranchised from the very uh, heart of the process that elects uh, a board to govern the game. That is, that is untenable, unsustainable and unacceptable in any professional sport. Um, so my only bit of counsel and advice based on a long history in the game back home is um, challenge these uh, forces of democracy at your own peril. Challenge them at your own peril because the game needs to recognise the widest possible base in order for it to flourish. Remo, there's, um, there's talk that if uh, the EGM doesn't go well next week, um, FIFA could come in and normalisation committee established. Um, can you see that happening? Well, I must say, before this current um, impasse back home, I'd never even heard of a normalisation committee. I mean, it's something of a misnomer when it comes to FIFA, you know, appointing a, a, a normalisation committee. But I don't see it. I don't see it, Tony. Um, uh, you know, there are enough... Um, there are enough uh, smart heads around uh, the various tables to understand that it would be uh, an embarrassment of international proportions should that occur. I mean, let's be very clear about one thing. Normalisation committees, uh, as far as I know, are normally associated with uh, underdeveloped footballing countries. Um, you know, they're not... Uh, they're not uh, normally associated with countries like Australia who are expected expected to sort out their differences amongst their stakeholders. Would it, would it return to uh, Football Federation Australia, as it is now known, uh, be something you'd consider? Oh, look, um, I saw my name bandied around 
the other day somewhere I can assure assure everyone I haven't uh, spoken to anyone about it I mean I'd love to have a role in, in football in some form I'm happy to cut the oranges at half time if that's the case mm. um, at some point in the future but um, I'm not I'm not even thinking about it at this point in time, you're obviously uh, heavily involved in in other work, but uh, we all love the game, and uh, if the opportunity presents itself, it's something that uh, you may consider down the path, which which is fair enough. Now, talk to us a little bit more about um, what's happening in Italy. Uh, we know that the Italian national team didn't make the World Cup, but I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime. It was... Uh, Something Disgrace. that we all grew up with, uh, waking up in the middle of the night and watching the Italian national team play at a World Cup. We all have memories of that, but uh, the impossible happened. Uh, it was described as uh, an apocalypse, uh, amongst other things, in the Italian press. Give us a flavour for uh, <laughs> what's happened there in the last week. It's been extraordinary, almost surreal, to be honest, Zappa. Um, the media have gone into overdrive have basically been hyperventilating about all the problems associated with football in this country a lot of those a lot of the problems they're highlighting are legitimate issues and ironically enough given what's happening back home uh, on the governance front go to the very heart of, uh, of, of the governance and structure of Italian football um, I don't know if any any of you saw the uh, media conference um, the other day by Carlo Cavecchio when he resigned as president of the Italian Federation. It was completely and absolutely surreal. And you need to ask yourself a serious question, and that is, how does a mature and highly respected footballing nation like Italy throw up uh, in, within the governance structure that presently exists, chairman of this ilk. I mean, it, it was a surreal, surreal performance. I thought I was watching Benito... I thought I was watching that grainy footage of Benito Mussolini on Piazza Venezia in Rome circa 1940 when I saw the... Um, when I saw the... Uh, uh, saw the footage. So there's been a lot of debate. Um, uh, you know, there's an element here of, well, are we going to just simply shuffle the deck chairs on the Titanic or are we seriously going to look at the structure of the game, its governance, etc., to ensure that the proper processes are observed when appointing national coaches, etc., etc. So as you'd expect, it is a big debate and it's a highly emotional one. So what are they going to do, Remo? Are they going to um, shuffle the uh, deck chairs or are they going to just start start afresh and, and rejuvenate the squad and uh, get a coach that can coach I think that's first it was foremost. one of the things Ange raised uh, in his press conference he spoke about uh, regenerating the Australian national team playing young players that uh, that uh, in, in the last World Cup were, were young players but if they hadn't had that experience then we wouldn't be where we are today and he made that uh, reference point of Italy and Holland who perhaps didn't do that and that's the reason why they're not there well, we, we've got to understand one thing. Uh, Italy, uh, certainly when it comes to football, is a very cautious uh, nation. Um, it is not um, uh, associated with uh, uh, Catenaccio and defensive football for no, for, for, for no good reason. Um, I don't think uh, we're going to see, uh, I'd be surprised at least, if we saw a complete revolution 
in the structure of the game here. I think what they'll opt for, and the Italians are, are very good at uh, these sort of things, they'll opt for a uh, change at the top, obviously bring in a president that has some currency, has some uh, you know, cachet uh, both within the game and more generally. Uh, I don't know who that is. There are all sorts of names being thrown around at the moment. And secondly, bring in a uh, uh, un commissario tecnico, a, a, a coach uh, that uh, will settle the natives down. Um, but I don't think I don't think you're going to see a, a revolution in the starting eleven uh, immediately. I'd be surprised. Uh, I'd be surprised with that. But you never know yeah and it's it's you know from afar it looks like what they exactly what they need to do when you look at the team that took to the park against Sweden uh, I haven't done the calculation but the average age uh, would be uh, in the high 20s I'd imagine uh, with with guys like Giorgio Carlini and uh, Bonucci and Barzagli and, and Buffon all, all great players and I'm a Juventus supporter and uh, it's hard for me to say this but they, they probably should have been looking at the, the next generation of young defenders if you're just taking that example uh, to to take them to the World Cup. I don't think defensively though they, you know, talking tech they were they were bad. I mean, well, they, uh, the problem was at the other end. They the couldn't other score. end, they couldn't <laughs> score. Um, but that's an example that these players had been there for a long, long time, and 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 was it, you know, the opportunity to to, to blood some younger talent, and would that have helped? I suppose is, is the big question. Yeah, right? I, look, I I'm with Tony a little bit here. I think. Um, I think the age of the squad is an issue, don't get me wrong, and regeneration is always an important part of ensuring, you know, uh, you've you've got a pipeline uh, of talent coming through. But it's not as if there aren't, uh, there isn't talent, should I say, um, within within Italy. I mean, if you look at the Sweden game, they had 75% of possession, 75% of possession. Now, they didn't have to do a lot of defending in that game. They were diabolical away from home, but I would argue here in Milano they were even more diabolical given the weight of possession. Yet they had people like Insigne sitting on the um, uh, sitting on the bench, and people like El Sharaway and others who just, you know, are not getting the game time uh, that uh, that they should be getting. But anyway, look, that's a, <laughs> that's a conversation for uh, another day or another coffee shop. It, it was uh, almost comical scenes when uh, and this has sort of become a viral uh, video that's gone uh, around the world is, is when Daniele De Rossi was, was asked to, to come onto the ground with, with yeah. not long left and he looked at the coach and he said are, are, you, are you kidding? You need to put that bloke on. He can score us goals, not me. <laughs> Maybe De Rossi can coach. He was, re- he was pointing to uh, Lorenzo uh, Insigne, you mentioned you know one of the one of the best players in Italy at the moment. Has Ventura been asked to to explain that decision at all since since his uh, po- post game? I'm sure he would have been. Well, look, you know the the press conference following the match, um, Michael was uh, was extraordinary because, uh, as you both would be aware, the post match analysis at the best of times is fantastic here in uh, in Italy. You know they'll. Uh, They'll dissect uh, everything, and the panels that you've got from Gianluca Viali uh, uh, on um, uh, Bebe Bergomi, etc. Marco Tardelli as just, well. I mean, they're just they're, they're just extraordinary mm. analyses. Uh, Ventura and the Federation decided to delay the media conference as much as possible. I think, hoping that some of the coverage uh, would go off uh, offline, but. 
um, the um, the sky coverage here hung in there, and I think it was about 12:30 when they had the uh, uh, the media conference, and of course it was on for young and old, um, and they cut it short pretty quickly because the uh, the media officer from the federation. Uh, argued that things weren't uh, respectful or getting out of control and therefore he cut short the um, uh, the press conference. From there, Ventura sought refuge, and still is, as far as I understand it, in, uh, in his uh, in-law's home down near Bari somewhere. I'd argue he probably needs to find a remote Pacific island for <laughs> to, seek proper ref- to seek proper refuge. So he hasn't explained himself at all, and I think he's in the middle of litigation anyway, with the Federation over his severance payment. There was a lot of um, talk in the fallout from the game, Remo, about um, the, the the senior players in the team picking uh, the team themselves and uh, Ventura sort of lashed out and, and, and said that uh, he felt like his position was undermined and he'd stormed out of the camp two days before the Sweden game saying to the players, you pick the team yourselves. It's uh, quite an extraordinary uh, uh, series of events. Look, I don't think managing the Italian, the dressing room of the Italian national team is an easy gig, guys. Mm. Uh, and it takes an extraordinarily strong individual uh, with gravitas and uh, credibility to be able to do that uh, because of the characters involved, because of the history involved, the, 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 the history of the, of the national team in Italy. And history tells us that those managers that have done best inside the dressing room have been pretty tough taskmasters, going back all the way to 1982, if you like, with Enzo Berzot, um, people like Lippi, um, even Zoff, Capello. I mean, look, there, there are, there, you need a strong character. Conte, uh, Conte is a st- strong character. Conte as well. You need a strong character because... Uh, Italy is a very, very special dressing room, and let's be clear, there's three of us, we uh, Italo-Australians here on this call. Um, we Italians aren't uh, the easiest to manage uh, emotionally and everything else. And I would argue, I was surprised when Ventura got the job, and I'm not saying that purely with the benefit of hindsight. I just didn't think he had those two great qualities. I'm not arguing that he, he is technically perhaps a, a decent coach, not for me to make that judgment, although the uh, results speak uh, against that to some extent. But what he lacked was gravitas and credibility, uh, and he wasn't able to capture the mind of the uh, Italian uh, football public, let alone the mind and hearts of his dressing room. And ultimately, in the end, that was his biggest failure. So um, who's uh, who's going to be the next coach, Remo? Who's the um, favourite? Oh, look, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd love... It's not going to happen. I'd love uh, I'd love it to be uh, Carlo Ancelotti. I'm, uh, you know, I'm an Interista. I shouldn't be saying that about a famous figure associated with my crosstown rivals, but uh, I think Ancelotti would be magnificent with a capital M. I had the great pleasure of sitting next to him on a flight a few years back between Milan and London and uh, what an extraordinary individual great sense of self-deprecating humour and uh, a highly knowledgeable knowledgeable guy with that gravitas that I'm talking about and I think 
the position now demands an individual with that gravitas. Did you tell him you were a, uh, an Inter fan? What's that? Did you tell him you were an Inter fan when you were travelling with him? I kept, I kept that well hidden, mate. <laughs> I kept that well hidden. I didn't want to cut the conversation short. <laughs> <laughs> Remo, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we know it's early in Italy, but uh, we appreciate your insights and uh, we look forward to catching up with you again soon. My pleasure, guys, um, and all the best. Thank thanks, you. Remo. Remo Nogrotto from uh, Italy, former chairman of uh, Soccer Australia and uh, a great bloke uh, at that, even though he is an Inter Milan fan. You're listening to Football Nation Radio. Welcome back to Football Bosses here on FNR. Michael Zapote, Tony Pignata with you as uh, we uh, wrap up this week's episode. Before we do, Tony, uh, FFA Cup, fantastic uh, uh, achievement from your former club, Sydney FC. Yeah, it was um, amazing. Um, you know, it's the uh, three trophies in one year. Um, so they start again. Um, so they're probably trying to do the treble this year. But uh, no, it's a, it's a great achievement. Um, great for the club. Um, they hadn't won trophies for for a long, long time, and now to win three in one uh, calendar year is uh, sensational. Um, great. I thought it was a great FFA Cup. Had everything. Um, even that melee at the end. Um, disappointed the crowd. You know, um, you know, thirteen odd thousand. I would, would have thought they would get around the twenty thousand mark. But um, look, I, I know there's a lot of content being in in Sydney with the Socceroos playing and back to back games uh, of Sydney FC. Um, but um, yeah, I was hoping to uh, to see uh, a few more people. Yeah, there. and it's a showpiece event, isn't it? And we need to be playing in front of uh, full stadia. And we we spoke about this a few weeks ago on our on our program uh, about the debate where the final should be held and understanding both sides of the argument but I think from a product point of view yeah, if you're marketing the game you should be playing in front of full stadiums and if it was Cooper Stadium was going to give us the best opportunity to play that then play it there yeah, and Sydney <laughs> will argue that it's unfair I can understand that they deserve the right but if they can't fill their stadium play it where you can playing at home is a huge advantage and understood and I don't think I'm, you know, any team has, has, has won away from home. Maybe Sydney did uh, when they won in penalties uh, against Melbourne Victory. Um, so it's a huge advantage to play at home. Um, but uh, saying that, you know, to, to get third... And, and let's talk about, oh, should we have it as a standalone game on a, on a Saturday night? That was done a few years ago. It just disrupts the whole league. It didn't um, really attract It didn't, big didn't attract either, anymore. So. You know, last year, you know, we it was against Melbourne City. They had nearly 18,000 at Amy. It looked good on on TV. wasn't a, the right result, um, but um, you know what what we do with the FFA Cup uh, is, is is something that uh, probably needs to uh, needs to be looked at because I think it's a great tournament. It's a, it's great that you know from grassroots everyone plays you know f- to, to to qualify at least to you know the, the thirty two and, and and you know Fox do a great job of uh, telecasting uh, the games live. Another interesting talking point out of that game, of course, was the the incident with the ball boy. A lot's been said about it, but I want to ask you, as a former CEO of Sydney FC, do clubs give instructions to ball boys before a game? Um, I think worldwide they do, and if you saw the incident um, in the Champions League with uh, with Klopp as well with the uh, the ball boy, um, yeah, you know, I think you know clubs probably do say you know if we're leading, um, don't give the ball. 
Um, you know, if we are losing the game, throw the balls back quicker. So is it commonplace in, in Australia, in the A-League? I think it's in football across the... You know, we, we saw you know, Joe Hart, you know, it went viral, you know, when he turned around to the ball kid and, you know, he was shouting to, to give him the ball. And we saw... Um, that ball kid jumping on the ball and uh, one of the, uh, I think it was in the EPL, an actual player kick the ball from underneath him. Regardless what um, what the Adelaide player did, uh, Moroni did, shouldn't, you shouldn't touch the ball kid, um, just you know, tell the ref, you know, put time on, etc. and he's not giving the ball back. Um, that did spark a, a melee which was quite ugly and uh, yeah, we'll see what FFA do about it. In so the, is in it the next time to get rid of ball kids? Do we need them? Um, yeah, I think we do. I mean, you know, they've all got a ball each. There's 10 balls that are out there. So, you know, it does allow the game to flow. Um, but you will see from time to time, um, you know, situations like that occur. And, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's look at it. And make Is sure the idea that it improves the uh, flow of a game? Uh, that's the main in a gen- reason. In a general sense. It does, it does. You know, you know, you just quickly see that the ball's being thrown back and... Uh, um, on most occasions. On most occasions, <laughs> you know. But, yeah, it's a cup final, et cetera. And, uh, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, ultimately uh, it, it wasn't a good look. Give us an insight into what will be happening uh, at Sydney FC now. Uh, Ange Postacoglu has left. Um, you were there in that chair a, a few months ago as the CEO of Sydney FC. Graham Arnold is the, the favourite, one of the favourites to, to take over, should he be appointed... As a, as a local coach, should the FFA go with with that strategy? What would Scott Barlow, the chairman, be thinking right about now? I know he probably would have rang Graham as uh, today, probably <laughs> this afternoon, as if he had a, f- a phone call from uh, FFA. Um, look, I know you know from from Arnie's point of view, he's, he'd be business as usual. You know, got they got Brisbane up this week, and uh, he said on TV last week, uh, last night, that you know they're not going to celebrate the FFA Cup. They'll pick a time when when they do, and that's that's Arnie to a T. You know, he's all about winning and, um, you know, first tick is, is the FFA Cup and now they're focusing on, on the Premier's Plate and the Grand Finals. One so. interesting element of it all is that uh, FFA uh, did say at the press conference that their next game is in March and they don't need to make a decision until closer to that time. So they do have some breathing space. If it was to be Graham Arnold or another A-League coach, it probably wouldn't be too much of an interruption on the A-League campaign. Yeah, but if they are, then make the decision early and allow everyone to get on with it. Tony, thanks uh, again. Uh, another great chat, and we look forward to doing it all again uh, next week. We thank Luke Cassidy, we thank Remo Nogorodo, and we thank you for tuning in. See you again next week. Here comes the money! Oh, they're going to win up with less than 30 seconds to play! Four bosses with Michael Zapponi and Tony Pinata on FNR Football Nation Radio.